How's everybody doing today? My name is Christian Wagner. I'm the Militant Thomas. I know I probably look weird right now because I do not have my headphones on. I cannot find them. I do not know where I put them. But get excited because, sorry, I'm trying to put on my, my candle. The Militant Candle. The Militant Candle is now lit. So, today we're going to be talking about how you, out there, you may be a doomer, you may be a bloomer or a groomer. I, I didn't mean groomer. Doomer. What, what are, boomer. Yeah, you know, now nah, I'm not going to restart the stream. It is what it is. I slipped up. I, uh, I said groomer rather than boomer, so... I hope you're not a groomer, because if you are, then um, you can read any moral theology book on on homosexuality and, and find out about it, and then stop being that. So today we're going to be talking about how Catholic theology views happiness and how you can be happy. And after this, since today is the two-year anniversary of Militant Thomist, started out as a blog, and then ended up where we are today. So after this, I'll be doing a celebratory Q&A where we can uh, ask questions, and I will talk about the some deep militant Thomas lore, how it all started, and how we got where we got. So today, I will not be doing all my advertising stuff because I'll be going over a section of a brief textbook of moral theology right here. If you notice, Christian B. Wagner is the editor. Yes, I am the editor of this book. Really good book. Um, as you can see, I typeset all of it, so it's all good stuff. Not none of these stupid prints. The link is right in the description below. And if you become a patron at patreon.com slash militant Thomas, you can get access to the PDF that I have posted. So please buy that book, and if you really like me, become a patron so you can get access to that PDF. And I'm going to look at, uh... oh man, yay, five-hour intro. <laughs> I like the intro, ear reveal, how to be happy, obtain the beatific vision. We'll be, we'll be finding out about that. Congrats. Thank you, fresh Mr. Thomas. Yes. I, I feel like, yeah, my ear reveal. I feel like I have weird ears. But let's get right into it. So it's going to be Article 3 in a brief textbook of moral theology. And, um, yeah, when it comes to the brief textbook of moral theology, it's really good because, again, it's Father Copen. So if you've uh, read his brief textbook of logic or his brief textbook of uh, of mental philosophy, what he did is he was an early 20th century Jesuit, back when the Jesuits were a bunch of chads. And what he did is he took all of these Latin scholastic manuals of, of theology and philosophy. He even has a manual of theology, a systematic study of the Catholic religion. And he took them, he took these just massive, like, five, ten volume, uh, just just tanks of manuals and he put them down into a level in which um, undergrads and high school students could understand, but it's still in the manual format. It's still wonderful. It's still great. 
Um, so those are really helpful. So I've actually reprinted a few of those. If you go to my website, uh, if you go to christianbwagner.com slash shop, you can, you can look at, look through some of those. They're really good if you're interested in um, wanting to study Catholic theology or philosophy, and you're not really um, an expert yet. You need some help with some of the basic language and concepts. They're very helpful. Or if you're, if you're more learned and you just want a quick, um, text to have definitions and arguments that are stated very succinctly. Um, that's another, it's really good for that. But yes, this is his work on moral theology. So article three, the attainment of our last end. So this is where he's going to tell us how to be happy in this life. So a man can labor for very different objects now for honor, now for wealth, again, for the pleasure of eating or drinking, or for the performance of duties, etc. Yet there is one thing common to all his objects or ends or purposes, namely a desire of well-being, of happiness. All men desire happiness. And this is going to be a very Thomistic thought, that St. Thomas believed that when, when any man, even a very wicked man, seeks to do something, he is seeking uh, his own good. He is seeking happiness, and he seeks it in many disordered objects, but there is one ordered object whereby he can order his life to receive uh, true happiness. So St. Thomas will say things like the, the end of man is happiness, which seems to be very, um, very abrasive to our ears to see Catholic theology speaking like this, that yes, you are actually made to be happy. And yes, it's a good thing to be happy. And yes, you ought to seek happy and happiness, and you necessarily seek happiness. It's something which everybody desires. It's inescapable. But it's also a good thing to seek happiness in the right manner with the right objects. So this is what he's going to be going over. But they often differ widely concerning the object in which they expect to find happiness. So, O oh, happiness, our beings, end and aim, good pleasure, ease and content, whatever thy name. So, when, when we come into apologetic encounters or discussions with those outside of the Catholic faith, and they talk about, frequently and often, they'll talk about happiness. They'll talk about the various objects in which they seek happiness. If you ever um, get into conversations, especially during this month of June, with those who are big homosexual supporters. They'll say, why don't you let them just be happy? And the same thing you'll see with the with those who um, seek frequent um, sexual encounters, those who are very promiscuous. They will say, well, I'm just trying to be happy. Just let them be happy. If you have the, the if you have the two dads and two moms and they're just trying to raise their kids, just just let them be happy. But this is not in accordance with truth because there is really one way of true happiness. The other ones are not true happiness, but they are false happiness. They are um, crypto happiness. They are they're just fake. They're not, they're not true happiness that they are finding, but it's something which will not satiate that desire, but is just going to lead them further into depravity and sadness, and they will just become even bigger doomers. So not only do all men desire happiness, but they also desire perfect happiness or beatitude. 
Beatitude may be defined as that state in which man is made perfect by the possession of all good things. It implies endless duration and the full satisfaction of all desires. Is such a state attainable by every man? And then thesis four is stated. So thesis four is that every man can attain perfect happiness. So every man can attain that beatitude that all men naturally desire. We can all attain it. So proof. If a certain good is found in all men, it must be a part of man's nature, and hence it proceeds from the author of nature. Now there exists in all of us, as we know by our consciousness, a desire of perfect happiness, and this desire is good, for by it we are impelled to perfect ourselves. Therefore, this desire proceeds from the author of nature. But God cannot have implanted such a desire in our natures unless he gave us the means to satisfy it. Because to allure us by a desire and a hope, which he had destined to disappoint, would be opposed to God's infinite goodness and truthfulness. Consequently, God has given us the means whereby every one of us can attain perfect happiness. So this is going to be a fundamental proposition in this discussion is that every man not only desires happiness, but can attain that perfect beatitude that is endless and that is the full satisfaction of all of our desires. But here a difficulty presents itself. We often experience contradictory desires. A man, for example, may love peace, yet when provoked by an insult, he feels inclined to break the peace. It is evident that perfect happiness cannot exist where desires are in conflict. How then can the conflict be made to cease? Certainly not until the lower cravings of our complex nature cease to war against reason. So what they're speaking about right here is that concupiscence, whereby our various faculties, our will and our intellect and our sensitive appetites are in, are in disharmony. But this, but as this never comes to pass fully in this life, the logical inference is that beatitude is not attainable in this life, yet we have proved it to be attainable. It follows, therefore, that we can gain perfect happiness in a future life. So from this proposition that we can attain perfect happiness and the reality that that perfect happiness is not wrought in this life. From it, the conclusion comes that there must be a perfect happiness in a future life. At this point, another question arises. Is man to be made supremely happy by being deprived of half his nature? Shall the soul be beatified alone and the body molder into dust? You may reply, there will be a resurrection by which all things will be made right. In that event, full gratification will be made, given to man's desires, along among which there will never more be strife, for the faculties of his lower nature will be in perfect subjection to the spirit. This is the answer of Father Costa Rossetti, S.J., and others, who maintain that in a purely natural order of things, the soul cannot attain beatitude without the body. In the state of separation, they say, the soul would feel a longing to be reunited to the body which nature intends for it, and with which it formed one person. Nothing prevents us, they continue, from supposing that a future resurrection belongs to the order of nature. In this sense, that as God gave us a natural desire for perfect happiness, 
He thereby pledged himself to procure the realization of that desire for those who obey the laws of nature. So now what we have is from this axiom, which can be easily proved that all men desire happiness and that God uh, would be obliged to give something which he implanted a natural desire for. From this comes the inference that there is a future life. And then also from it, since the body is the matter of the soul, that the soul is the form of the body, that there is that fundamental and intimate connection between the spiritual and corporeal aspects of man, that there will be a resurrection whereby the body is reunited to the soul and that longing is um, that longing is satisfied. Most philosophers, however, consider the resurrection as entirely supernatural and in no sense due to our nature. And they maintain that the soul can be perfectly happy without the body. To prove this point, they reason thus. The lower powers of man exist to subserve his higher powers in this life. When the soul possesses in the next life the full knowledge and love of God, it no longer needs the body or the lower faculties. And consequently, it will have no desire for reunion with its lot in inferior companion. The authorities and arguments for both opinions are sufficiently weighty to warrant the student freedom to accept either. Whichever option will be adopted, every objection against the attainment of beatitude can be satisfactorily answered. Yeah, I prefer I prefer the first option. It makes more sense um, in a Thomistic framework of how the soul and body um, are intimately connected, connected as matter and form. Okay, and before we get to thesis five, I'm going to check the check the uh, the comments. If you have comments, you can just send them in the chat. I'll be answering them throughout. Thesis five, no created object can make man perfectly happy. Proof. Man is distinctively man chiefly by his intellect and will. So our, our humanness, our manness is wrought about and distinctively made the differentia that we have the, from the rest of the genus of animal is by our rationality, the fact that we have an intellect and will. Hence, no object can, be, can make him perfectly happy unless it fully satisfies his intellect and will. So in order for our, the fact of our rationality and animality to be fulfilled, it has to be an object that satisfies our intellect and will. This, however, no created object can do. Such objects are riches, honors, pleasures, human science, and that is human knowledge, and virtue. But as none of these, nor all of them together, can satisfy man's intellect and will, it is clear that no created object can make man perfectly happy. And I was going to go over into each one of these objects. And this is actually very good uh, apologetically. Because you can work from that fact that all men desire happiness and the fact that um, there will be that future life. But that needs to be pro proved before that, that nothing on earth, no created objects are going to be able to satisfy um, that happiness. And this is patterned after St. Thomas in both the Summa Contra Gentiles and the Summa Theologiae. Um, you, can, you can see both. Maybe at the end of the video, I'll go over where he's basically just kind of copying and pasting in simple language what St. Thomas is saying. So first, not riches. 
And I'm sure everybody knows somebody who finds their desire in money, which are only means of providing other good things. At their best, they cannot last beyond the present life, and they do not perfect the intellect and will. And actually, St. Thomas is going to say that the most dangerous object in which we can put our happiness in is riches. Because other things, if you think about uh, sensual pleasures like food or drink, you can only eat so much. You can only drink so much. You can only have so many clothes or you can only um, have so many cars or whatever, whatever. You can have only so many honors. There's a limit. There's a natural limit of enjoyment. But when it comes to money, you can have an infinite, basically an infinite amount of money. And if you put your desire in money, then the the satisfaction is never going to come because as you get more money, all you're going to do is desire more money. The, the pleasure is never going to get satiated. And then also the fact that it doesn't last past this present life. And that the fact that it's only a means of providing other good things, it's it can't be an end in itself because money by its very nature is merely a means. Not honor, for honor, whether viewed as the esteem which others have of us or as the outward manifestation of this esteem, cannot perfect our intellect and will. It generally has uncertain existence when it is ordained and it cannot be obtained by all. Obtained when it cannot be obtained by all. Besides, honors are often bestowed upon the undeserving and denied to those who are most worthy of it. So when it comes to honors, honors very frequently, and uh, we, we experience this in real time, honors are given to those who do not deserve the honors. That, and even though the internet might make this a, a little less, uh, if you read in the, I believe it's the Sumo where Thomas talks about this, but when it comes to honors, you, you might be honored by, uh, let's say, a few thousand people, like to be realistic. Uh, may, maybe you'll like become, I don't know, president or something, and then you'll be honored by, by millions and millions of people. But even then, there is a large, large, large majority of the world who's not going to honor you. Um, your honor is going to become increasingly imperfect. So if you're going to, to place your end in honor, it's going to be insufficient and imperfect, no matter what. You're not going to be able to have every single person um, esteem you or give you those outward manifestations of honors or any, anything like that. It is always going to be something which is imperfect, and it's always going to be something which is going to leave you lacking. So third, not sensual pleasures, which certainly cannot perfect our higher faculties. On the contrary, the pursuit of sensuality degrades man to the level of the brute. And surely it is absurd to say that man's perfect happiness consists in self-degradation. You see, with this one, this is honestly probably the most important of them. Because, yeah, you find people who like riches. Yeah, you find people like honor, uh, human knowledge, virtue, um, all of them. You, 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 you'll find people who are going to desire each one of these individual um, ends. But just by the nature of man, uh, the fact that the sensual pleasures are going to be the most imperfect of them you're going to get the most people who are seeking those sensual pleasures as their end. You see this again, the fact that it's Pride Month. You see it on um, go to your average college campus. Um, you, you'll see that, uh, that food, that drink, alcohol, drugs, um, sexual pleasure, um, sexual perversity of many kinds, um, pornography. You, you, you'll see that all of these sensual pleasures which appeal to the lower faculties, the faculties of, of merely physical um, and corporeal enjoyments, 
that the pursuit of these as the end is going to uh, be the most popular. And it's also going to be the most dangerous because your lowest faculties, like at least with, with human intelligence or human sciences or honor, at least these are going to be the higher faculties with, with human knowledge. It's going to be enlightening and illuminating um, the intellect. So at least it's going to be a, um, a, a higher sort of uh, pleasure. But when it comes to sensual pleasures, while certainly riches is the most dangerous, these are going to be the most, uh, the most brutish is the fact that this is this is something that that animals partake in, um, not rational animals. So four, not the human sciences, so not human knowledge. I'm gonna check the. Okay, just check the chat. So not the human sciences, since human nature is essentially the same in all men. The perfect happiness of the human species must be the same in every in kind for every individual, and hence within the reach of all. But science is not within the reach of all because many persons have not sufficient ability to acquire it. Being, moreover, somewhat finite, science can neither satisfy the intellect, which is always reaching out for unlimited knowledge, nor the heart, which is capable of loving and therefore desiring the infinite. So first, the first argument is because... When it comes to human sciences, so let's say, I don't know, particle physics or, um, or metaphysics or epistemology or um, the higher uh, echelons of uh, scientific theology or re really uh, any sort of gender studies, let's say it's even that. This is not within the reach of every individual. Because if you're, let's say, a, this is this actually becomes much clearer in our current um, environment, because you're going to have people who are hyper specialized. They might be a, phys, um, they might be a physicist, a particle physicist, who specializes in like, I don't know, an extremely extremely narrow uh, field, and they don't know anything else about not only other. Um, sciences and speaking of the physical sciences but other aspects of physics and even other aspects of particle physics it is something which becomes so niche and the the fact that uh, that is not open to every individual to perfect themselves in all knowledge like you may have uh with with the renaissance men who were a perfect in all sciences um it, it's something which is going to be impossible outside of the reach of all and it's just going to lead to um a state of absolute uh, doomerism from the fact that you're not going to be able to uh, reach the point of perfection, even in your own super little niche, because new stuff is just being discovered every single year. So it's just a, a very stupid thing to, to put your, to put your happiness in because it's something which you're never going to be able to attain. And further, because um, this knowledge is finite it's not going to satisfy the intellect, which, uh, as as St. Thomas says, in some sense is all things because it is able to um, conceptualize within it uh, all finite being and all finite things. And then also um, to reach out towards um, the infinite. And then also with the what he calls the heart. This is really um, the rational appetite or called the will. It's going to desire and love um the infinite so it's the finite um science is not going to be able to reach that fifth you have not virtue so virtue isn't that because this is going to be a little bit more um a little bit more common within within our circles uh 
is that somebody's going to seek virtue as their end. And for a really good meditation on this, uh, look at St. Francis de Sales um, in his devotional work on perfection and on devotion. I think it's uh, what on true devotion. I, I, I don't know how I forgot the, the title of the freaking book. In, uh, no, no, no. In, uh, the introduction to the devout life. That's what it's called. Yeesh, it took me a second. But if you look at chapter chapter one, I think it's either chapter one or chapter two of that book, you're going to get his wonderful meditation on on how Catholics, uh, when it comes to the life of perfection, are placing their end in lesser things. Because rather than placing their end in God, they're going to be placing their ends in the instruments, which may be the virtues, it may be the sacraments, it may be, it may be many, many of these things, maybe prayer, maybe the reading of scripture. And they're going to place their end in these uh, individual goods, but it's not going to be uh, placing them at their ends in God and then these things as means to that end. So fifth, not virtue, which consists in a habitual, habitual tendency to perfection. Virtue is consequently not the ultimate object of desire, but only the means to attain that object. Virtue, again, is only that means. And then sixth, not all these united, for they are all confined to a present life, and they cannot satisfy the desire of a being that longs for everlasting happiness. So thesis six, from this, we can conclude God is the only object that can make man perfectly happy. So proof one, every man can attain perfect happiness, which was proved in thesis four. Therefore, an object must be attainable that can make man perfectly happy. But no created object can do this, as was proved in thesis five. Therefore, the creator is the only object that can make man perfectly happy. Then there's a second proof. Proof two, man's perfect happiness supposes perfect satisfaction for his higher powers, that is, his intellect and will. But no object can give such satisfaction. For these two powers uh, accept perfect truth and perfect goodness. Expect perfect truth and perfect goodness. Oh, sorry. I just, uh, I just zoned out right there. But no object can give such satisfaction to these two powers except perfect truth and perfect goodness. For his intellect ever seeks to know the cause of things and the causes of these causes, nor can it ever rest content until it understands the first cause. As the first cause contains all good, the human will cannot help loving and desiring it when it is once known. Therefore, the perfect or infinite truth and goodness, which is God, is the only object that can make man perfectly happy. In other words, the possession of God in our sub is our subjective last end. By subjective, it means the, the subject, um, uh, the, the last end of us as a subject. So man's ultimate beatitude, as philosophy treats it, viewing the subject by the light of reason alone, does not include the intuitive knowledge of God, that is, the beatific vision, which we know from Revelation to be really in store for us. So notice this isn't uh, De Lubachianism. Our, uh, the beatific vision is known from Revelation alone, not by the light of reason. The beatific vision is not due naturally to man or to any other creature. It is a supernatural gift. A soul in a state of natural beatitude would know God in a manner proportionate to its nature. It would understand the perfections of the creator by reasoning from the knowledge of it possesses of itself and other creatures. This knowledge of God, though abstract and not intuitive, 
would not be a cold speculation. On the contrary, such a knowledge of a being all good, all beautiful, all amiable, the soul would enjoy all perfection. So notice, this is the um, this is the distinction which is made, because and this is a bit of an aside, but the De Lubakians, um, what what they would say is that um, the idea of a purely natural end is is a bit silly um in that there is still some sort of uh supernatural trace within the nature of man just just to put it very simply this is you read surnatural if you want if you or then um there's a there's a secondary resource which is really good which is called um the the natural desire to see god and i'm again blanking on the author of that right now There you go, Lawrence Feingold. That's who it is, Lawrence Feingold. That was a bit silly of me. And then, uh, then obviously, Father Lagrange has some sections within his book, which is called Beatitude, which is a commentary on Prima Secundae. If you want to know more about this, but back to this, what what the Thomists are saying is the fact that uh, the reason that um, there is that natural end, which can still be found in God is that it is an abstract and it's a um it's a warm speculation but it's still a speculative end the fact that it's still reasoning from creatures to creative creator and it's not um that intuitive knowledge that we have in the beatific vision so it still is found uh the natural end of man is still found in god but it's proportionate to our nature and it's not something which is intuitive but it's something which is abstract and speculative and by reason and not by um not by grace. So thus, the primary element in natural beatitude would be the perfect knowledge of a perfect object, yet consequent on that knowledge and inseparable from it, as an attribute or even an essential part of perfect happiness, would be the love and enjoyment of that object on the part of the will. No one pretends that perfect happiness, as here described, can be attainable in this life. The nearest approach to it possible on earth lies in the right ordering of our faculties towards the attainment of our last end. Indeed, from the nature of things and from the laws of harmony, which an all-wise creator has established in the universe, the happiness of a, per of a being is proportionate to that being's perfection. Hence, the more perfect we become, the happier we shall be. So since we have already established from this that our, the, um, the, the object of our happiness is in God, and um, that our perfection is proportionate to uh, our happiness is proportionate to our perfection, that the increase of our perfection, which is found both naturally and supernaturally, is going to be our happiness in our life, in this life. So naturally, it may be the practice, it's going to be the practice of the natural virtues, which is going to dispose us towards that end of God both the loving, the natural love of God and the natural knowledge of God. And then when it comes to the life of grace, which is found in the Catholic faith, this is going to be in the, found in the practice of the supernatural virtues and in the disposing of ourselves to the reception of grace, which is going to um, increase in us charity and also faith, which is our current iteration of the, um, of the knowledge of God. And then it's going to find find its uh, telos supremely in the mystical life.
So um, read those mystical books. St. John of the Cross is the best. I, I think I, yes, I do have him on my desk. He was my, this is part of the reason why he was my um, confirmation saint. Is the recognition of um, the the necessity of the mystical life. So the collected works of St. John of the Cross. So Dark Knight of the Soul is pretty good. And then also the Ascent of Mount Carmel. Those are his, his two main works in this regard. And then Father Lagrange has the Three Ages of the Interior Life, which is really good on this. And then St. Thomas has On the Perfection of the Spiritual Life. Um, that's one of his books that's really good. If you kind of want those those intros. Now, Father Lagrange has a shorter book too, but I'm not remembering um, off the top of my head what that book is called. I think it might be called On the Love of God. Uh, Knowing the Love of God. Yes. So he has some good um, good books in this regard. Okay. Now back to it. So moreover, we may distinguish three kinds of perfection. A, physical perfection, which supposed the possession of all the faculties required for the, quote, acts of man. Two, moral perfection, which regards our human acts as properly directed to our last end. Three, final perfection, which consists in our attainment of that end. Possessing then the physical perfection of human nature, we must, to attain higher moral perfection, so order our faculties by the practice of virtue, that one, our lower powers shall aid and never impede the proper actions of the intellect and will, which this is found through virtue. This implies that we must restrain and control our passions and suppress all inordinate desires for bodily pleasures, riches, honors, and power. By doing, by so doing, we shall live free from contention, impatience, restless ambition, from intemperance and lusts, which their attendant degrade, degradation of body and soul. So to teach you how to do these things, uh, this is a really good book. And then also there's a playlist on YouTube of Father Rippiger's sermons on virtue that are actually really good. So two are higher powers. The intellect and will shall tend to ennobling objects, which bring us nearer to God. We ought to study his perfections. We should endeavor to appreciate his constant care for us and to understand his supreme right to manage the whole course of our lives. In this way, we shall acquire an humble resignation to God's sovereign will and a loving trust in his fatherly providence, dispositions which secure us in peace against the passing ills of life. Thus, unlike the Stoics of old, who vainly strove to imagine that there were no ills for the just on earth, we must accept as men of sound common sense the sufferings of this time and confidence and love as purifications through which we are to pass to the full possession of eternal happiness in God. And then three of the goods of earth, which are needed for our bodily life. We shall exert ourselves to obtain a, su a sufficiency. Accordingly, a man should, from his youth, qualify himself for some respectable pursuits in order either to procure a decent support for himself and those depending on him, or if he already has the gifts of fortune, to enable him to pass sufficiently through possible reserves, which such an equipment, though his station in life may seem ever so lowly, 
a man can enjoy deeper peace of soul and greater happiness than those who abound in riches and honor and the world's false delights. So basically what Father Copens is saying for you is get a job, make money, care for those who are under you, have sufficient care for yourself, and then get rid of the rest when it comes to the goods of this earth. So if I get rid of the rest, uh, this could be through saving it, um, through providing fortune for your descendants, that is a work of justice, or through giving your due to Holy Mother Church. So really, um, it's quite simple, but it's also quite impossible um, due to our concupiscence, save without grace. Okay. Hounds of justice. Oh, no. So, hey, militant Thomist, can someone sin against the faith interiorly and exteriorly? Yes. Interiorly, um, that, that sin would be um, the sin of unbelief. And then exteriorly, it would be... Well, what would the technical term for it be? Um, I guess you would say it outwardly could be heresy. It could be um, infidelity. Um, it could be blasphemy, depending on object and severity. So, yeah, you can you can sin interiorly and exteriorly against the faith through unbelief um, negatively. And then also positively, you can sin against it um, through various uh, types of blasphemy. So... Thank you for watching. After this, I'm going to go straight into a Q&A, uh, probably 6.15, just to set it up and, uh, and everything. But thank you for being here. Remember, it is uh, with Suntide now. So the Spirit has filled the whole earth. Hallelujah.